one characteristic of human nature we can all identify with is that we all dread experiencing personal embarrassment. We've all had dreams that we're glad were only dreams. Uh, I dreamt once that I went into the pulpit in my pajamas. Uh, there's not only a, a humorous side to our embarrassment, there's a serious side as well. We all cringe when we uh, recall certain events in the past, something we did or something we said that we now greatly regret. And this was certainly true of those in the scriptures. Uh, the Bible portrays men who are so confronted by the weight of their sin that the overwhelming conviction of their hearts is that they are guilty. I want you to think of three examples with me. Think of the example of Jesus with doubting Thomas. Thomas is there with the other apostles in that upper room. Uh, he had not been with them the week before when Jesus appeared to them. And he was doubting. He said, it is not until I see Jesus and put my hands into his hands and into his side that I will believe. On this occasion, uh, Jesus came among them. And he said to Thomas, place here your fingers and put them in my hands and your hand into my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Or think of the example of Nathan, the prophet, with David. Uh, David had committed grievous sin in his adultery and in the subsequent murder of Uriah the Hittite. And God sends Nathan to David, and he tells David the story about this poor man with this little ewe lamb, and this rich man comes and takes his lamb away. And Nathan looks at David and he says, David, you are the man. Or think with me of God's answer to Job's why question. Throughout the book of Job, Job is wondering, God, why have you allowed all these things to happen to me? And near the very end of the book, God meets with Job and he begins in rapid fire fashion to throw one rhetorical question after another at Job. Job, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I flung the stars into existence? And Job puts his hand over his mouth and he says, I repent in dust and ashes. What does each of these circumstances have in common? Well, an encounter with a holy God, or at least a holy prophet, with sinful creatures. So much so that the reality of their sin is brought home to them in a powerful way. They discover something of the depth of their sin which they didn't see before. They're found out to themselves. Now I see my sin for what it is. An absolute truth made known to that individual, not in abstract or in theory, but very really and very personally, they come to a sense of conviction about their sin. What is God doing here? God is confronting these men in such a way as to bring conviction leading to repentance. And that is always a good thing, beloved, however painful it may be initially. And I want us to see this morning how that happened with Peter here in Luke chapter 22. I want you to notice that Luke takes us through three scenes together. In the first scene, we learn of Peter's denial of Christ. Notice that Peter's denial had several stages to it. 
Each new stage was more serious than the one before. Each subsequent stage was built on the previous one, making it easier to commit the next. Notice these stages with me. First stage in verses 31 to 34, we learn that because of Peter's self-confidence and pride, he took lightly the words of Christ. Uh, we need to see here that Christ had warned Peter, but Peter had little regard for what Christ had said to him. Uh, Satan saw Peter's pride, and he literally begged permission to sift him like wheat. We might say today that he wanted to make mincemeat of, of Peter. He wanted to bring Peter to ruin. And this comes on the heels of verses 24 and following, and their discussion as to who among them was the greatest. Again, another issue dealing with their pride. What was Satan doing here? Satan saw a crack in Peter's armor, his spiritual armor, one that he wanted to exploit. Satan always needs a, a willing heart, a landing pad, if you will, to gain entry into our hearts. And that entry was Peter's pride. But we go on to a second stage. In verse 54, we read that Peter followed at a distance. His actions are now a reflection of his heart. He didn't seem so willing to die for the Lord Jesus now. He stayed, we might say, in his comfort zone. And as would become clear, he didn't want to be identified with the Lord Jesus. Perhaps you, perhaps I, know something of what it is to follow Christ at a distance when we are around other people. Because Peter's consecration to Christ was lukewarm. His service to Christ was very weak. We go on to a third stage, verse 57. Peter now verbalizes his denial with a lie. He is more bold in his denial, first by his actions and now by his words. And this to a servant girl. This wasn't to uh, a soldier or some official, but it was to a servant girl. Then in verse 58, his denial becomes stronger. He says, man, I am not uh, a disciple. I am not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 59 and 60, his, his last denial, it's more serious because there was a man there gathered around the fire who insisted in his accusation, certainly this man was with Jesus. And Peter very vehemently denies that he knows Christ. And in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, we read, that Peter began to curse and to swear. Under the anonymity of darkness, around the evening fire, Peter denies the Savior who would die for him. His life vividly illustrated the proverb that pride goes before a fall. Peter's heart was unteachable. He didn't believe that what Christ had said to him would happen. And 
we see something of the blindness of Peter's own heart. But before we're too quick to bring accusations to Peter, we all, do we not, are we not all capable of Peter's sin? I can deny Christ in what I call relatively minor, subtle, imperceptible ways, uh, only to turn more adamant until by my actions, if not by my words, I convey, I don't know the man. And for Peter, it all began by taking lightly the words of the Lord Jesus. So there's our first scene. We go on to a second scene, which is Christ's gaze of conviction in verse 61. You know, sometimes the scriptures don't describe for us in detail some of the things we'd like to know. And here is one of those places. Wouldn't we like to know the expression on the face of our Lord Jesus as he gazed at Peter from across the courtyard? But because of the results, we know two things about what his expression conveyed. Number one, Peter met with the convicting gaze of Christ. Three things happen relatively simultaneously. The rooster crowed, Christ looked at Peter from across the courtyard, and Peter's mind was flooded with the words Christ had spoken to him only a short while before. God had so orchestrated these three things that Peter was stricken in his conscience. Peter realized that what Jesus had told him about his heart was true. And the veneer and the facade of his self-righteousness and pride was exposed to himself. He began to appreciate that he had offended a holy God. And what he had known in his head, but had forgotten, he was now beginning to appreciate in his heart. What he uh, was doing was trying to say, Jesus, I don't believe you. I will follow you whatever the cost. And ultimately, what Jesus was doing was preparing Peter for that service that will serve Christ and his kingdom well in the book of Acts and beyond. We need to appreciate that Peter uh, was deceived and the Lord was beginning to undeceive him. This wasn't the first time that Peter had known the Lord's conviction. Earlier in Luke's gospel in chapter 5, you'll remember that Peter and his companions had been out fishing all night and they hadn't caught a thing. And they're coming in, they're weary, they're tired. And Jesus says to Peter, cast your net over here and you will gain a catch. And so Peter says, Lord, I will do your bidding. You can almost read between the lines here. Peter's saying, Lord, I'm the fisherman, not you. And yet he casts his net. And we read that they have such a large number of fish in the net that the nets begin to break. And Peter looks at Jesus. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter was beginning to understand his own heart better and better. 
But we need to appreciate as well that um, as, as uh, uh, he is, is being undeceived, we need to understand that only now does he begin to see the deceitfulness of his own heart. Sometimes we see sin well in others, and we don't see it all that well. We see it poorly in our heart. And it's God's convicting grace that causes us to place our focus back where it belongs. And so Peter met with the convicting gaze of Christ. But there's a second thing that Christ's expression conveyed to Peter, and it was this. Christ's gaze was not only convicting, but it was also healing. Dear ones, we mustn't overlook the fact that because Christ's purpose was conviction, his intent was gracious. He would bring healing. Had Christ wanted to cast Peter off, he wouldn't have looked at him from across the courtyard. They wouldn't have had this eye-to-eye encounter together. Uh, God's purposes of conviction regarding all of his children, regarding you and me, are always filled with gracious intent. When our consciences convict us, that is God the Holy Spirit working well, wanting to draw us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, perhaps Christ was being led to his next stage of interrogation, And Sinclair Ferguson writes, from across the courtyard, Peter met eyes of compassion, not condemnation. He met eyes of compassion, not condemnation. Christ's expression was the opposite of the slave girl's stare or glare of accusation and suspicion in verse 56. And the way Christ's expression brought uh, conviction was in the mercy conveyed in his countenance towards the Apostle Peter. It was not an, I told you so. It was, Peter, I love you. His gaze was convicting. His gaze was gracious and merciful, and it brought healing. You know, a realization of our own Uh, sin and our heart's condition can be known biblically in one of two ways. It can be known through the law of God. God often uses that in our lives. It can also be known through the mercy of God. Both bring conviction and both are biblical, but only the latter brings healing. Biblical repentance always understands God's mercy because it is a turning from sin and back to God. You might think of the shorter catechism question. Uh, What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, and notice this next phrase, and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred turn from his sin unto God with full endeavor of uh, new obedience. It is with an apprehension of God's mercy in the very lenses of our sight that you and I want to repent. Who is going to want to repent if there's a Savior who is not willing 
to show us mercy when we have sinned. Christ's love found time for a straying, wandering, uh, proud sheep. What changed and softened, not hardened, but softened Peter's heart? It was the, it was the gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield says this, that look was the difference between Judas and Peter. Let me ask you a question this morning. How do you imagine that Christ looks at you from heaven when you sin? Do you imagine him looking at you with a gaze of condemnation or with a gaze of compassion? Do you see how ready he is to forgive you and me of our sin? Christ's compassionate gaze is intended to drive us to repentance. He orchestrates all the events of our lives, the places, the timing, the individuals, to bring about that repentance. He forgave doubting Thomas. He forgave Job. He forgave David. He forgave Peter. And dear ones, he forgives you and me. You and I need to remember that gaze when we find ourselves in sin. His look to us is one of compassion as well. Let me bring this a little further home. There are times when we will be God's instruments in the lives of others to encourage their repentance. And are we ever aware by our nonverbal actions and expressions that those can speak as loudly as our, our words? Is your look to others when they have sinned against you one of condemnation or one of compassion? Are we imitating Christ or are we imitating the world? So there was Christ's gaze of conviction. But then Luke takes us to a third scene here, and that's the further workings of repentance in Peter's heart. The merciful gaze of Christ upon Peter was for the express purpose so that Peter would put his eyes back on Christ. In Peter, we have a wonderful biblical example of true gospel mourning. Biblical repentance is always accompanied by a godly sorrow, a sorrow in the first place for what it does to God. Peter wept because of his sin. He saw himself as he really was. And the beginning of Peter's recovery and the beginning of ours lay in repentance. And again, what's going to encourage that repentance? It's the gaze of Christ when you and I sin. The beginning of his recovery was because only, only because his eyes were fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only eyes fixed on Christ that will produce a godly sorrow that works repentance. Think of Esau. Esau's sorrow 
was a worldly sorrow because his eyes were not fixed on the mercy of God. Repentance knows many counterfeits, and true repentance is born of a godly sorrow that realizes with the apostle Peter that Christ knew us all along and that he really does love us. One of the evidences of Christ's love for us is that he prays for us. Verse 32, Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Remember how the author of Hebrews puts it. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. If the shaking or the sifting of Satan is so terrifying, uh, imagine how even more it is to have the reassurance of the prayers of the Lord Jesus. In verse 31, Peter gets a glimpse of satanic reality. Satan demands permission to sift you like wheat. In verse 32, Peter gets a glimpse of heavenly reality. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And dear ones, he prays for us. Aren't you comforted by that? To know that he is ever living to make intercession for you at the Father's right hand. That ought to be of tremendous comfort and encouragement to us, and indeed encouragement to repent of our sins. I want to bring out two points of application as we draw near to a close this morning. Application number one, we need to beware of the subtlety of pride. We are not all that different from Peter, are we? Uh, Satan rarely works by leaps and bounds. He, He works by subtle degrees. Sin is often very subtle. Pride can wear a thousand disguises. And we need the strength of Jesus every day because we are incredibly weak and full of sin. And our hearts are covered with more than enough nooks and crannies for Satan to want to grab a hold on and through temptation to pull me down. Let me say a word this morning to any who may be here and you are not a Christian. You're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. One reason why people don't turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins is because of their pride. And it won't be until the realization of the greatness of your sin grips your heart the way it did for Peter that you will ever see your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also important to remember that mere conviction of sin, because we all have a conscience, is not the same thing as conversion. But God works conviction in our hearts for the purpose of turning us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not Christ this morning, in large part it is because you don't see the greatness of your sin before Almighty God. The Puritan uh, theologian Thomas Goodwin wrote this, if you would see what sin is, 
go to Mount Calvary. Go to the cross because it's there that we understand that God's wrath and God's justice are met with God's mercy and God's forgiveness. It necessitated the death of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Son of God, the sinless one, to pay the penalty that otherwise all who are apart from Christ will pay for all eternity. Peter would later write in 1 Peter, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might reconcile us to God. My dear unbelieving friend, Jesus is the friend of sinners. He longs that you don't push down like a beach ball your, the, the, the convictions of your heart because that beach ball will only pop up from hard times. But that you say, God is wanting to get my attention. That you turn, that you repent, that you rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we all need to be aware of the subtle cunning of our pride. But then in the final place, we need to ask the question, why did Christ allow Peter to go through this? Well, for the same reason that he allows you and me to go through similar things. It was not only to make Peter distrustful of his own heart, but to prepare him for future service as the book of Acts makes wonderfully clear for us. God, dear ones, if he wants to use us for his glory, he will also all often put us through such trials. He may be wanting to get our attention about sin. And if that's the case, he's wanting to see his mercy, that we would turn, that we would be, we would be more equipped, more prepared to serve the Lord Jesus in the future than we were if we were to cling to this sin. Think in your own life as I think in my life. Whenever I cling to sin, I am very reluctant to want to do anything for the glory of God because my conscience is working all too well. And so what the Lord says to us is what he said to Peter. I pray for you. See the compassion, the mercy I am ready to extend to you. And so God's ways are higher than ours. When he puts you and I through difficult times, he's wanting to work in us to bring us to a point that we would be more distrustful of our hearts and more ready to cling to Christ. Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it so helpfully. In chapter 5, they, they write, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for sundry other just and holy We may not uh, always understand every jot and tittle 
of what God is doing in our lives, but what he is doing in your life and in my life because he loves you is he's wanting to work a, a deeper repentance, a more lifelong repentance. Yes, there are those stubborn sins we cling to and we have to repent for again and again. The Lord is so patient, and thank God he is. But you and I need to appreciate that the more we see our hearts, the more we see the ugliness, the, before, the more we see the volcano, the ashes of sin spewing out of our lives, out of our mouths, out of our attitudes and our actions, the more we see those things, that's a good thing. Because the Lord wants to drive us out of ourselves. And he wants us to rest in Christ and his forgiving mercy. Dear Christian, you and I need Christ no less now and his forgiveness now than we do the day we first came to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you imagine Christ looks at you from heaven when you sin? You see his gaze of compassion. You see his love for you. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of compassion. You're the God of all grace. You're the God who has begun a good work in your children, and you will bring that work to completion. We know that part of that work involves conviction of sin. We thank you for the life of the Apostle Peter. As much as we identify with him, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you ever lived to pray for Peter and you ever lived to pray for us. We pray that we would not sweep our sin under the rug. We pray that we would not push, push the beach ball under the water. We pray that we would own our sin and we would do so gladly because we too have an apprehension of the mercy of Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we sin, one of the ways you woo and draw us back is to show us that your gaze is one of compassion, that you love us. Oh Lord, bring these things home to our hearts. For Christ's sake, we ask.